would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to first, second Samuel chapter six, second Samuel chapter six. You can also find the passage printed for you in your bulletins. Last week we were looking at uh, the first half of chapter six and this event that took place with David attempting to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. And we read about uh, the tragedy that happened as a result of them not following God's word, not doing it according to the instructions that God had given them. Uh, And as a result, tragedy struck. And today we're reading about the second attempt and how things changed um, and how things were different. So I'd invite you to uh, read along as I read to you 2 Samuel chapter 6 beginning in verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate Before the Lord, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and we ask you to help us as we come to this portion of your word. Even as we come to any portion, we ask for the Holy Spirit to be present in our midst, to open our eyes, to help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word. We pray that you would help us to understand what it looks like to live as your people in this world as we wait, as we wait with eager hope for the second advent of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Elizabeth Elliot tells a made-up story in her book, These Strange Ashes. 
It's likely a story that she uh, took from, uh, that had been made up by Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century pastor and preacher. And the made up story goes like this. This is how Elizabeth Elliot told it. One day Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. He didn't give any explanation. So the disciples looked around for a stone to carry and Peter, being of the practical sort, sought out the smallest stone that he could possibly find. After all, Jesus didn't give any regulation for weight or size. So he put his pebble in his pocket. Jesus then said, follow me. He led them on a journey. And about noontime, Jesus had everyone sit down. He waved his hands over the stones and all the stones turned into their lunch. He said, now it's time to eat. In a few seconds, Peter's lunch was over. When everyone was done, Jesus told them to stand up and he said again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. This time Peter said, aha, now I get it. So he looked around and he saw a small boulder. He hoisted it on his back and it was painful and it made him stagger. But he said, I can't wait for dinner. Jesus then said, follow me. He led them on a journey. Peter barely able to keep up. Around dinner time, Jesus led them to the side of a river. And he said, now everyone throw your stones into the water. And they did. And then Jesus said, okay. Follow me. And he began to walk away. Peter and the others looked at Jesus, dumbfounded. Jesus sighed and said, Don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who were you carrying the stone for? Therein lies the default of the human heart, does it not? Selfishness. We tend to focus more on ourselves than on the Lord. We, we tend to try to get things from God as opposed to getting God himself. Sometimes we do better at that. Sometimes we do worse. But at the very foundation, the audience that we have as we live our lives is most often ourselves and others as opposed to the Lord God Almighty. And that's in direct conflict with the teaching of the scriptures which tells us that our primary audience in life must be first and foremost the Lord God Almighty Himself. Last week, as we looked at the beginning part of chapter 6, we saw examples from David and Uzzah of what it looks like to live out the usual way, doing what they wanted to do, rather than what the Lord had told them to do. And we saw the devastating effects as a result. This week... We see that David learned a lesson and he demonstrated for us what it looked like to live as one of God's people. Specifically, we're going to see three things today. And you'll notice that there's not an outline in your bulletins. That was my fault for not getting that in there this week. But here's for those of you that like outlines, here's the outline. Here's where we're going. We're going to look at these three things that David shows us for what it looks like to live as God's people as we wait for our Savior. One, it looks like living according to God's word, not just however we think is best. Submitting ourselves to the word of God as opposed to just doing what we want to do. Secondly, David gives us an example of living with a humble joy 
and not some empty formalism or ritualism. And then thirdly, David gives us a picture of what it looks like to truly live before the Lord. And to do so with the Lord as our audience, first and foremost, rather than being concerned about what others think. So there's our outline. That's what we're going to be looking at in the passage today. First of all, David gives us a picture of what it looks like to live according to God's word and not just how we think is best. If you were here last week or you know the story of the first half of the chapter, you saw a bad example of that. We saw what it looked like to live however we want to live. David knew very specifically that the, the specific instructions that God had given to his people about how they were to move the Ark of the Covenant from one place to another. And David failed to implement those instructions. Uzzah also would have known what those instructions were, and he also failed to implement them and went ahead as the way he saw best. And as a result, tragedy struck. Uzzah died. David got angry and afraid. And he ended up leaving the ark at Obed-Edom's house for three months. But apparently, during that time frame, God was at work. And during those three months, David learned a lesson. We read in verses 12 through 15 of our passage that the Ark of the Covenant, which we talked last week, represented the very presence of God as it stayed in the house of Obed-Edom for three months. Where We read that it brought blessings to Obed-Edom, to his entire household, and it says to everything that they owned. David, after hearing that, went back to Obed-Edom's house to get the Ark to try a second time to bring it to Jerusalem. But this time, the word of God guided what David did. Now, you can't see that very specifically here in the 2 Samuel 6 passage. But as Elder A.C. mentioned earlier in his prayer, we have a parallel passage that tells us about the same event in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. And in 1 Chronicles 15, we read about this specific second attempt to bring the ark into Jerusalem that David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. What we're seeing here in 2 Samuel 6 in the last half of the chapter and as it's given to us also in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 is what I would call a joyful repentance that is taking place. David acknowledged that he had not followed God's word the first time. And he repented of that. And he came back to the word of God, and in the second attempt to bring the ark into the city, he followed the word of God and did what the word of God said. And notice in verses 12 and following, just notice the words that are used as that what happened in a response. There was joy and celebration. There was rejoicing. There was dancing. There was singing. There were, there were instruments being played, and the people were having a celebration. It reminds us as God's people that every day we deal with the temptation that is real, 
that is tangible, that is powerful, to not live according to the Word of God, but to do what we think is best in our own eyes. To live how we want to live and not submit ourselves to what the Word of God says. And as we look at this passage, it's a reminder to us that there are always consequences for disobeying the Word of God. It may not always be as dramatic consequences as we see here in 2 Samuel 6, but there are always real consequences for disobeying God's Word. When we disobey the Word of God, it is never accompanied by true and lasting blessing from the Lord. If you're here and you're single and you long to be married, the Scriptures tell us that you are to marry only in the Lord. And if you were to disobey that command of God, then there's no blessing for you in that relationship. Let me get the eyes of the young people here in the room for just a second and those of you that are online as well. God has given us, given you commands to obey your parents. And when you don't obey your parents, you're disobeying the Word of God. And when you do that, there's no blessing that is attached to it. We are called to obey the Lord by obeying our parents. Those of us who cultivate lust in our hearts as opposed to rooting it out. Watching things we shouldn't be watching. Reading things we shouldn't be reading. That's cultivating the lust in our hearts as opposed to to leaning against it and rooting it out. We are disobeying the Word of God and there's no blessing attached to that. David gives us the picture that as God's people, we are called to live according to the Word of God and to submit ourselves to it and not live just however we think is best. The second picture that David gives us here is that we must live with humble joy and not just simply go through life with an empty formalism or ritualism. We read here that as the ark of the Lord was brought into Jerusalem, David and almost everybody in the city broke into a worship celebration of the Lord. And we see that they had this celebration of the Lord with humility and great joy. It was not some mere formality, not just going through the motions. They were they were celebrating with joy and humility in their hearts. You can see the humility in a couple different ways. One way you can see it is in David's posture. If you look back in verses 13 and 14, this is as the ark is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. We read that when those who were bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, David sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. As the ark got closer and closer to Jerusalem, David stopped the procession after only six steps and he offered sacrifices. They might have been sacrifices, a a sacrifice and atonement for sins, for the sins that had been committed in the first attempt to bring the ark to the city. They might have been sacrifices that were a thanksgiving offering, that they had gone six steps and they had not ended like Uzzah, because they were now following the Lord's lead. But regardless of what kind of sacrifices these were, David is giving us here a picture of what true humility looks like, a posture of true, true humility. He is putting the Lord first. And you can see it again at the end of verse 17 through verse 19, that as the ark finally arrives in the city and it is put in the place for which it is, was set up for it, we read that there were burnt offerings and peace offerings made to the Lord. 
And we see David serving the people, pronouncing a blessing over them and distributing food for all that they might have a celebration in their homes. You can see this humility through David's posture. You can also see the humility through David's clothes. If you look at verse 14, we read that David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. In other words, what we're reading here is that David took off his his kingly attire, he took off his royal robes and his royal clothes, and he put on the clothing of a humble priest. He wasn't... He wasn't taking over or usurping the, 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 the roles of the priests, but he was giving us a picture of what it looks like to humbly serve the people of God. Giving us a picture of the greater David who would come, Jesus himself. There's a sense in which David is saying, I am your king, and yet I will serve you. Demonstrating humility. Along with the humility that we are seeing here in response to the Lord's presence coming into their midst, we also see a sense of joyfulness erupting from the people. Just look at the words that are used to describe how this entire scene unfolded from verses 12 following. We read things that like they were rejoicing, that David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. That people were shouting and that there were the sound of instruments taking place. That there was leaping and dancing before the Lord. Blessings were being pronounced and food was distributed. This was a, a celebration of joyful worship. In fact, we read in First Chronicles 15 that David actually appointed singers and musicians to raise sounds of joy in the midst of the city. This was, this was not some empty formalism that the people of God were going through. It wasn't just some ritualism or, or going through the motions as the ark was coming into the city. What is happening here is the people of God are getting a real apprehension of the presence of the Lord in their midst. And they break out in humble joyfulness as a result. It tells God's people something about what our worship ought to look like. Sometimes Presbyterian and Reformed folks are rightly criticized for worship that feels overly formal or even ritualistic. And we do certainly have forms that we follow. We try to have worship that is regulated by the Word of God. There's there's an intentionality to what we do in our service. But even though we follow a, a biblical plan or a biblical liturgy, it should never be just empty ritualism or formalism. We shouldn't simply be going through the motions. Rather, our worship of the one true God should be a jubilant delight and joy as we recognize that we are in the presence of the Lord God Almighty and we remember his promises to us. Rick Phillips in his commentary on 2 Samuel says that when believers today hear the scriptural assurances of pardon in Christ and sing hymns that celebrate Christ's atoning blood and our justification through faith alone, our hearts should be barely able to contain the joy that these gospel truths rightly stir in us. We also have to recognize that there will always be circumstances in our lives that make joyful worship difficult. That's true now as well. As we deal with the circumstances of the pandemic, we're not all together. We don't 
give the usual hugs and handshakes that are very common in the foyer and hallways of our church. We're wearing masks. And it's appropriate. It's appropriate for us to grieve these temporary circumstances that we're dealing with. But at the same time, we must never allow the circumstances of our life, whether they are these circumstances or any other circumstances of our life, to completely rob us of the joy of worship. Our joy in worship comes not primarily because of our circumstances, but because of the God that we worship and we serve. And our God has not changed. And His grace has not changed. If you look up the word joy in a dictionary, inevitably you will see something about a feeling. The biblical sense of joy is not not a feeling, but it's more than just a feeling. It's also a state of mind. As we, as we recognize who it is that we come to worship and the wonderful blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. There are always going to be Sundays when we don't want to go to church, when we don't want to worship, when we don't feel joyful. But we worship the Lord and we meditate on the truths that bring us joy as the Holy Spirit would be at work, even as we pray for him to be at work, to fill us with biblical joy that defies this world's understanding and explanation. David gives us a picture of what it looks like. To live as, his, live as God's people with humble joy and not just empty formalism or ritualism. Thirdly and lastly, David gives us a picture of what it looks like to truly live before the Lord. Rather than being more concerned about what others think. I'm sure you noticed as we looked at this passage that not everybody was joyfully worshiping and celebrating in Jerusalem when the ark arrived. We hear the story about one person in particular in verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And we read down in verse 20, her comment to David as he finished the worship celebration of the people in the city and he's going to go home so that he might bless his family. He might bless his household. He might lead his household in worship and joining together with the people of God in the city. But as he gets to the house, Michal, his wife, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, and you can just you can hear the sarcasm dripping from her lips. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Now, what is what is McCall's problem? Well, the text actually gives us a clue. Did you notice how she's described in the text three times? Once in verse 16, then in verse 20, and then again in verse 23, as she's mentioned, it's McCall, not the wife of David, but the daughter of Saul. David actually specifically addressed that fact in verse 21, where he reminds her that the Lord God Almighty had chosen David. He had 
chosen David over her father, Saul, and the household of Saul. David was the chosen leader of Israel now. And there's a sense in which we are supposed to understand that Michal was from the old regime. She was not somebody who was being driven by a joyful humility before the Lord, but rather a selfish ambition and pride and a desire to receive praise of the people. Notice the contrast that we see here between David and McCall in these verses. What was, Dave, what was McCall's accusation against David? What, what made her despise him? What made her feel contemptuous against David? Well, it's what she says in verse 20. She's not accusing David of not having on enough clothes in front of the female servants. You could potentially see that, if, potentially think that if you look at it just on the surface level. But as we dig a little deeper into what is going on here, we see that her accusation against David is actually far worse. Her accusation is that David is not acting like she thinks the king should act. She thinks that he ought to be acting like her father Saul would have acted. David had humbled himself and become a servant to the people of God. And he had done that in how he had dressed and how he had acted. And McCall was concerned about how it looked. She was concerned that David wasn't projecting the royal authority and power and reputation that she had seen her father display. Probably she was concerned about her own reputation in front of others. Dr. Liam Gallagher is the senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania. Dr. Gallagher is originally from Scotland, but he's pastored churches around the country and around the world. And at one point he was pastoring a church in Canada and he received a new call to go back to his home country of Scotland to be a pastor there for a period of time. And Dr. Gallagher tells the story of a time right after he got back to Scotland pastoring the church there. He remembers that it was an unusually hot summer day. And it was his day off. And so he thought that he would take a bike ride into town. And while he was there in the town, he ran into one of the, the elderly gentlemen of the church that he had just come to pastor. And when that man saw Dr. Gallagher, he stopped him and took one look at him in his T-shirt and shorts on his bike. And he said to Dr. Gallagher, well, you might as well be naked. He had wanted Dr. Gallagher to always be wearing his Sunday formal gray suit and clergy collar at all times. Essentially, the man was saying to Dr. Gallagher, if you don't look like a minister, then I won't trust you as one. There's a sense in which that's what McCall is saying here to David. If you aren't dressed like a king, if you don't act like a king, if you don't keep your subjects under your foot like a king is supposed to do, then I will despise you and hold you in contempt. McCall was more concerned with externals, with appearance, with power, and what others thought. She was living her life before others. And she thought David should be doing the same. Now, contrast that with what David said. Look at verse 21. How did he respond to McCall? David said to McCall, It was before the Lord. 
the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. David was focused not on what others would think. He was focused not on living before others. His focus was on living before the Lord. In fact, it actually says that twice in verse 21 and it said it before in verse 16 to get our attention to live as God's people in this world means that we are to live our lives first and foremost before the Lord. There's no indication here from the text that David had any concern about what others thought about his worshiping, his celebrating, his dancing, his serving the people of God. He was focused on the Lord, his presence His goodness, His grace, and His promises. And notice David goes even further. He doubles down in verse 22 as he continues to speak to McCall. And he tells her, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. And I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. In a sense, this is what David is saying. I'm going to go even further as a servant of God. I'm going to go even further in humbling myself to serve the people of God as I live my life before the Lord. And it will probably make you despise me all the more, McCall. But the servants of whom you spoke, they will hold me in honor and respect as I humbly serve them. Now, before we think about what this means for us today, let me make just a quick word about verse 23. Verse 23 is kind of an anecdotal comment that the author gives us uh, connecting to what had happened. And what verse 23 says is that Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. The implication here is that as a result of Michal's heart and her attitude and her actions, she remained childless until her death. But this is not saying that childlessness is always a judgment from the Lord. It was in this specific case. The Lord had judged the house of Saul. He had cut Saul's household off and he was making it so there would be no more heirs to challenge David. McCall was the last one that could provide an heir. But it would not be right to extrapolate from this specific historical instance in Scripture and assume, whether for yourself or for any others, that every case of childlessness is God's judgment. The Scriptures just don't say that. But how do we take this and and think this, this last third point, that we are to live before the Lord and not be overly concerned about what others think? What do we do with that? It shows us that God's people are to live first and foremost with the Lord as our audience. We are to live before the Lord. We ought not to be driven primarily by what other people think. In fact, if we live as the Bible describes how Christians should live, we will end up being very countercultural to this world. We will look different. We will look unusual. We will live sacrificially for others. We will serve others. We will be humble. We will have a joy that is not derived from the circumstances of life. We will be radically generous with our time and our treasures and our talents. We will put the glory of God before our own glory. And if we live like that, it's going to stick out. 
It's going to look different. And we might be ridiculed. We might be even despised or dismissed. And very possibly not become as rich and powerful and well-known as our neighbors. But that is okay if the Lord is our audience. If we live before Him first and foremost, then He will provide everything that we need, both in this life and for the life to come. So, as we finish today, and as we reflect on this picture that David gives us of what it looks like to live now, as we are waiting for our Savior to come back again, what it looks like for us to live, that we are to put God's Word first, that we submit ourselves to it and not just live however we think is best. That we live our lives with a, with a true, joyful humility. And that we live our lives before the Lord, not being overly concerned with what others think. If we think about what that actually looks like, I hope you can sense the weight of it. Sense how hard it is to live that way. It would be hard to live even just one of those ways, let alone all three of them all the time. We need some powerful strength and motivation. Well, what was it that motivated David? What was it that motivated David to live this way? It was the Ark of the Covenant. The, the, the symbol, the, the, the representation of the presence of God coming into David's midst and coming into the city of Jerusalem. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we know the ultimate arrival of God's presence into our midst that the ark was pointing forward to. We know the arrival not just of the representation of God's presence, but of God Himself in flesh and blood through the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ. We know the arrival not just of a box into a city, but of the second person of the Trinity into this world. And just as David humbled himself and served God's people and blessed them and gave them good gifts at the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, how much more so has the better and greater David done so for us when he came into this world? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the first advent of Jesus and his first arrival, he blessed and secured good gifts for his people. Grace upon grace. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places for us. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we wait for His second advent, His second coming, we do so with hope. We have the hope that this greater blessing that even David couldn't completely understand is ours in Christ Jesus. And the more that that gets into our heads and our hearts, the more that we will have the motivation and the power to live like the picture that David gives us here in these verses. Let's pray together. Father, it is so hard for us to live Monday to Saturday and even Sunday itself as you call us to live. 
It's so easy to slip into our old ways, slip into our own ways of thinking, slip into looking for our approval and our audience from anything else except for you. I pray that you would help us, strengthen us, we pray, through the work of the Holy Spirit as we meditate on the wonders of your grace and mercy and the hope that is ours as we meditate on your grace upon grace and every spiritual blessing that is ours in Christ Jesus, fill us with the strength we need and the motivation we need to live as the people that bring you glory and honor in this place. Help us to do that until the Lord Jesus comes again. And we pray that it would be soon. We pray it in his name. Amen.